Hi, my name is Diewald Kirsten and I'm a photographer based in South Africa. I've always had a huge passion to connect with people from all walks of life. And the national lockdown has forced me to do that. I've had to come up with new and interesting ways of connecting with friends and connections and people that I've always wanted to connect to. Hence, this podcast. I'm doing daily live shows on my Facebook page where I talk to new and interesting people. And these I will be converting to podcasts that you can listen to on your own time. So please stick around and uh, love to hear your feedback. Hi guys, uh, welcome to another Lockdown Live. We are on day, what's it now? Monday, we're on day 11 of being locked up and locked down by the government. Um, I think it's from here on forward, it's going to be a lot more, it's going to get interesting for the people at home. Right, today I'm going to chat to a guy that I've met via Instagram, uh, Jake K. Boz, as he said to me in his voice note. I was not sure how to pronounce his surname. Anyway, Jay is a journalist and a photographer. Very nice guy, does some really cool stuff. He's been featured quite a bit with his drone photos that he does of the tidal pools in Cape Town. And um, I know that he's doing a bit of coverage on the current COVID-19 situation in Cape Town. So I think uh, we can chat a little bit about that. Don't want to have too many negative things going on in this in this little show. But uh, yeah, so right now we're just going to see if Jay can join. Um, so what have you guys been up to? Please leave a comment and listen. If you guys got any questions, please type them out in the question field. We will answer them. I am looking at both my screens so I can I can see when you guys comment on something and then we can chat about that. Now this, uh, this little journey that I've undertaken with doing one of these each day during lockdown has been quite interesting. Got some really cool people coming up in the next week and um, I'll share some more later tomorrow. It's going to be quite an interesting one, I think. And um, yeah, if you, if my plan is for this, when as soon as the lockdown finished and we don't have to be stuck at home, I would still like to do one of these every week and convert it to a podcast, not necessarily just via the internet, but definitely in person as well. And I'm going to see if I can set up a little something here. This is my dining room slash live studio at the moment. And I've got beautiful light here, so that is kind of what I'm figuring in or what my plan is. So we'll see how that pans out. Right, now we just need to get Jay to come on here. It's the wonderful thing about technology in 2020. Everything else is seeming to fall apart, yet this is still, thank goodness, still working. Hey! How's it going? Hey, all right, and you, man? Good, 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 good. Good. You look, you look, you look all dressed up and nowhere to go. Well, you know, it's uh, any excuse to get dressed and ready. You know, these days you've got to like pounce <laughs> on it. So, <laughs> now, friends of ours, uh, um, Louise, who does quite a bit of work with me, her kids gave them a formal invitation on Sunday morning, saying that they should be dressed and ready for. A fancy dress party and they all got dressed in suit and tie and 
whole bank shoot for a dinner that the kids prepared for them yesterday. Oh, that's cute. Yeah. <laughs> well, you need, to get, you need to keep yourself entertained somehow. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. But uh, I suppose like as we're getting further along, it's, it's a little bit more, it's not as new as it was. So now you kind of starting getting to that phase where everything starts getting boring and you don't really know what's going on yet. And you're hoping that it will end after 21 days, but you're not sure. But yeah, <laughs> interesting times. Eh? If, it, if it ends after the 21 days, I think we're going to be very lucky. I think if, if they lift the lockdown, we will still be very, very restricted in what we get to do after this. So I still think I had a chat to my neighbor who's got a coffee shop in town, and he's really feeling the pain of this, um, this lockdown because he says he's got 11 staff he needs to pay. He, he must still pay his rent, um, electricity. He can't buy coffee beans from his supplier, the whole bank shoot. Um, he says it's a nightmare. And I said to him, well, the way I'm seeing this, I don't think any of the restaurants will open once the lockdown is, is finished. Well, you'd hope they'd be able to open, but getting stock is going to be a different matter altogether. Um, yeah, I suppose it's an interesting point to raise. You know, obviously a lot of businesses are affected by this. It's not just, you know, and it's a lot of the, you know, it's, it's not just essential services that are still running. There's potential for lots of companies to go under that you wouldn't even expect, you know, even the ones that are essential services because they're having to shift and adapt. Yeah, but yeah. it's like I said. I don't know about food supply. I haven't thought about it. Hmm. Say again, sorry about the fruit supplies? No, I was just thinking, yeah, it probably would affect them. But, you know, the, the farmers, is, if it's local produce, it's probably, they'd be able to source it pretty quickly, you know? Yeah. It's, it's the guys who are importing that it affects the most because obviously the imports is still locked down. So and, they won't and, be able to get their hands on that very quickly. And also with a lot of the farmers on that subject is I, I work a lot with, with, with farmers that's in the export market with regards with fruit and everything. And with them, um, at, at the moment, they are doing very well because there's a high, a high demand in fresh fruit overseas. Um, so it's not like they're sending, they're sending containers full of fruit overseas and it doesn't get sold and they're not making any money. It does get sold. doesn't matter what the... The quality could even be slightly down. They will still there's still a market for it, and the the rand dollar exchange is that even the even if they were selling less, they were still making the same amount of money they would have made in a good season. So I think on the farming front is that the guys in the export growing fruit for export market they are in a very good position at the moment. Yeah, I think they're probably one of the few ones. Yeah. Oh, I'd agree with that. Yeah, and, I mean, like, if you about it, I, just, I don't know, restaurants, well, if they could survive the 21 days without bringing in any capital, because it's obviously, they they run very uh, short margins on their businesses. So usually they typically will have, you know, it's a month or two's worth of cash, so, you know, for a rainy day, but... You know, it's, uh, once you get past that 21 days, then it's, you know, then it really is emergency status. And, you know, yeah. that's where it's, but, uh, which it's is also, why the 21 days. It's like I said to my, my neighbor as well, he buys his, 
like stuff like his bacon, eggs, and those kind of things. He buys from local local guys as much as he can. But the, but now you've got a guy supplying free range eggs that's got a that that can supply the restaurants and maybe like little um, uh, cafes and stuff. But he hasn't got an account with like a checkers or pick and pay or shoprite. So and and if it did, they would only pay him 120 days. So you would still be out of pocket. We. Yet he is an essential service, but he can't supply at the moment because he hasn't got anybody to supply to. And to get all those accounts yeah. in place is going to be a nightmare to do right now. Oh, well, we'll have to wait and see. Um, I suppose it's the next wave of um, impact that we'll be feeling after lockdown, post-lockdown, if it's when it happens. But the, the, the nice thing is, though, we... We are kind of in a unique position in that when we started lockdown, we were a couple of weeks behind other countries. So we can kind of gauge we can kind of gauge what other countries are doing and then we can adapt according to how that behavior affected their economies. Yeah. So we can look at the countries and then kind of adapt that model or change the model because we'll know what does or doesn't work. So we are in a fortunate position in that regard. Yeah. So hopefully we'll be able to learn our lessons from it. But yeah, still very much, I think everyone's very hesitant and very unsure about what the next year is going to bring for all of us. Yeah. Right. Let's step back a little bit. I think um, I quickly mentioned in a little intro that you're a journalist by trade and ph photography is a big passion of yours as well. So I think let's just, for the people that don't know you, um, just give a quick rundown of what you do and all those kind of things. Cool. Okay. Hey, guys. I'm uh, Jay Kabos. I'm a journalist at Business Insider South Africa. Um, I do a lot of multimedia-based work, so that's photography, video, as well as written articles. Uh, we at Business Insider, well, as a journalist, I do a lot of feature-based articles, so that's looking for quirky, weird sorts of stories. So I'm not really typically on hard news beats. So it's more about creating stories around people or businesses in particular. So um, some good examples would be uh, I do a lot, try to engage a lot with drone communities and people coming up with very interesting ways and innovative ways of using drones in agriculture spaces, in photography spaces, or whatever it is. Um, Another example is tech, uh, you know, a lot of app developments, talking about innovation, how it can transform South Africa. Um, so I, I usually work along those sorts of lines, producing that sort of content. Um, I usually like to think of the stuff that I do. I get very excited when I can bring a story that no one's really heard of before um, to the foreground or, you know, to, you know, our audience um, and because the Business Insider is part of the Media24 branch of uh, news publications, we've got a very large user base. Um, and I believe with all the recent um, with all the recent lockdown content, we were like my, some of the top most read websites, online website publications in the country. Actually, yeah, it's cool. quite crazy. Business publications are skyrocketing through. So yeah, um, very much so. So. I do also anything from satellite images. I like to, I love flying my drone, um, and then I'm also running around with a Sony A7 III, uh, taking landscape photos in my spare time. And then if I can get out the office, it's about shooting protests, um, engaging with entrepreneurs, producing picture stories around that. 
Now, who's, who's some of the most interesting people that you've had interviews with? Sure. That's hard, you know, because there's so many. Uh, let's think. As we've had some, I think, some of the best, most interesting stories I've had done has got to be, uh, it was quite a while ago, but it still stays true with me or sticks with me is um, there's a company called the Popo, which is uh, trains um, rats to sniff out landmines or sniff out the TNT in uh, landmines. And it was all based on, uh, by the, the whole premise of the story was based on a Belgian Buddhist monk who was who thought he could train them in Mozambique to sniff out these landmines. And then I went with this company uh, to Angola where they were initiating the project. Um, first off, it was an incredible story about how we went into like an actual minefield where we could see the, uh, you know, I saw the rats in action as they, basically they conditioned trained to sniff, when they sniff correctly, the TNT, they are rewarded with a banana. So when they go out into the field, they associate that this was with work and then they'll go and sniff in the land and then they scratch at the spot and then the, the D-miners can identify those spots. And the whole premise is that it's based on making it more efficient than sniffer dogs because you can pack 12 rats into a cat, you know, into a yes. bucky in the middle of nowhere. And they can do so much more surface area than, say, for instance, a dog. Or um, and another benefit would be that these rats can also um, they don't they won't give you false positives uh, by hitting like a mine detector would pick up pieces of metal as well. So it could, it could pick up a bullet, but it could also pick up a tin can lid. You wouldn't know the difference. So you'd spend a lot of time, you know, trying to see if this was a landmine when in actual fact it wasn't. So you know, people using animals can do incredible things like that. So very crazy story. I can also imagine that the, the rat is light enough not to set off the landmine, whereas a dog, a, a dog could step on it potentially and set it off. If I'm just thinking of an Alsatian, or they should be able to to do that. Yes, exactly that. So that's also the one benefit of them. And obviously they, you know, they don't really require much in the way of food or specialized yeah. food. They just need a couple of bit, you know, a couple of pieces of fruit and, you know, a little bit of love and care. And <laughs> then they quite happy to, you know, work. You know? Uh, and, and they're very cute, actually. They names. They give them good names like Lionel Messi. And, you know, so it's like there's a, there's a real bond between the, the owner or the, the D-miner and his rats. You know, like they've got a good bond, and they will all have their own little characteristics. So it's very cute. And and on that on that <laughs> subject, is it is it quite an expensive exercise to get these rats to be trained up to do this? And and why I'm asking is I I um I met a gentleman last year who's from the states, and they have got a company where they build specialized um, equipment for testing in labs. So for instance, they would um, build a machine so that in this case it's mice that mice will always try to be where it's dark. So they, it, it's a machine where they test to see how long a, a mouse will last before it goes insane or it kills itself or it dies if it can't go into the dark. Or what happens if you... So basically what will happen is there will be a dark place and there's a shock pad underneath. So as soon as the mouse goes in there, it gets shocked and it runs out again. So they do all these kind of lab tests. And he said to me that those mice 
And often when they do like um, um, when they do testing with different kind of medicines and stuff, all the mice in the test facility needs to be 100% clones. So there's no variance from mouse A to mouse B. Um, and he said those mice range in any excess of six thousand dollars and up per mouse. Hmm. Oh well, I think it's. I think in that situation it would be more lab based. So obviously it's it's the context is the lab testing itself. Whereas these these rats you can think of more as uh, working dog, you know, working animals. So they're. I think they were slightly cheaper than. They were a lot cheaper than raising a dog to do the same job. Okay. Uh, this area, so they weren't. I, if I can recall, that I don't. I can't remember exactly how much they were, but you know, like the actual raising cost. Mm. But they weren't. It wasn't something astronomically expensive. You know. No, I can um, imagine because they grow fairly quickly they, and they breed yeah. fast as well. Yeah, they, and they were also uh, African cane rat, um, African rats. So they quite large. Rats, so they live a lot longer than normal rats would. Okay. And they're more, well, the theory was that they're a little bit more intelligent. And, um, and I would presume would as well that they can't, yeah. they can't really use any invasive kind of species. So if the thing does get out and get lost in the felt, it won't cause damage. Like if you would have some, a, a non-native a non animal get loose. Well, uh, yeah, they they carefully managed. They are in cage, you know. They are living in cages, um, so you would hope that they wouldn't escape. Uh, but yes, yeah, some of them are local, but they have been using the, the cane rats in other countries as well. So it's not just in Africa. Okay. I think they were using them in Laos and Cambodia, or training them. They specifically bred in a in a location, so they you know like each has got its isolated fact, you know, not factory, but each has got its own. A managerial site where they operate from and where they care after the rats. So it's like a pretty well looked after facility, you know. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, interesting. Um, there, there was talk that they were going to develop that project a bit further and they're going to train the rats uh, to sniff out TB, tuberculosis, in sputums, which was like the next stage of what they were doing. Because obviously, TB is a very big, in, yeah. is a very big problem. In, South Africa and in the rest of Africa as well. So yeah, that's like where they're playing around now at the moment is trying to convince people that the rats are pretty, you know, that, that they produce pretty good results in terms of like consistency of smelling, you know, like as an early detection system, which is quite interesting. Oh, awesome. I've had a gentleman yeah. here by the name of Rob Wright ask me, Minister of Health, with a question mark. So I presume, Rob, you want to know if Jay has interviewed him. Yes, I have interviewed Aaron Mazzoletti back in the day when he was still health minister. I haven't interviewed William Kizzi. <laughs> but um, uh, yes, I, Aaron was actually, he formed a very big part of, I did like a very big project on TB research in South Africa. It was about two or three years ago. Um, this was when major drugs were being tested in South Africa um, by the likes of Bedaquiline and new, new drugs that were coming onto the market, which had been clinically trialed in South Africa and the rest of the world and had helped to reduce the regime of um, TB treatment. So if you can remember, if you ever had TB before, like in the 2000s, you used mm -hmm. to have to take like hundreds of pills and be on TB drugs for like years before you were cured. 
So they help to reduce that regimen down to like six months and like take down the number of pills down to I think it was like 20 or something. Um, very interesting sort of work Aaron, uh, Mr. Mozzolelli did. He was also very numbers, straight kind of guy. You know, when before the interview, he wanted to know what we specifically wanted to talk about. He wanted to have his numbers prepped beforehand. And yeah, actually very, very passionate about health um, and especially TB, very, very, very interested in it. In it. And, and as you know, it's Valen Kizi as well as Aramats Valen, they are doctors. So they have worked through the system, they have had the experience on the ground, and they're very much aware of the um, current condition, you know, the current crisis with coronavirus, which is why I think at least with William Kizzi is very level-headed about the decisions and he has been turning to a lot of science, you know, to make basis his decisions for the lockdown. Okay, so what what kind of stuff have you done? I know that you said to me before that you are going to be working, covering some of the COVID stories. So what, what have you done in this while the, since this thing has hit um, South Africa? Yeah, so it's been quite hectic for us as journalists working. Uh, we're producing all sorts of content. Um, Business Insider, we focus, like to give everything a bit of a consumer spin to it. So um, it means a lot of looking into what sort of stock is being selling in stores. What are the rules and regulations about what you are supposed to, you know, trying to def- trying to figure out where we can answer the many questions that the average consumer is asking on the ground for, you know, for, for our readers. So we're looking at answering, you know, like uh, at the beginning when lockdown hits, did you need to drive around with a permit or not? So a lot of those, and on, you know, those very much uncertain questions that a lot of people are looking to find answers for, as well as looking at toilet paper selling for some reason, because of people, you know, stockpiling, um, covering that sort of, you know, I, I don't want to say carnage, but uh, <laughs> that panic obviously influenced a lot of um, a lot of people to go out and try stock up. Meanwhile, the grocery chains were all the retail chains were saying, listen, guys, we've got so much, we've got so much stock that we've been preparing for this for months and we're not going to run out of anything. You don't need panic buy. Um, so it's just that contrast, you know, between what's the reality, what's happening on the ground versus what's happening in the businesses. So covering a lot of those stories, as well as I have been out on the streets myself for a couple of days. Um, I went out on lockdown day one and it was eerily quiet. You know, there was a lot of, like, even myself, I was driving around quite nervously because there was quite a few blockades. Um, and so long as you had your, as a journalist, you travel around with a permit and then your ID and then your press card. Um, and so long as you've got that with you, you were fine with going through roadblocks or, you know, being inspected by police that, you know, generally are pretty comfortable with how you are, you know, you're there for an, as an essential service yeah. person. There was, wasn't that much uncertainty. And I think just on the ground experience wise, very much seeing, um, these empty streets and that contrast also with there was, there is still quite a lot of homeless people out on the streets, uh, especially around CBD area. Like those are generally the people that are walking around. So our media 24 buildings are based right in the, in the um, Cape Town city, uh, city of Cape Town for sure. And just walking around those areas, very different. You can realize how like empty the streets can be. It's like, yeah. quite weird because you can actually hear the, the echoes of the seagulls, you know, the wind whistling through. <laughs> it's and, like, you know, it's, it's like it, really, just, I am legend. Trucks and, and 
(laughs) (laughs) And yeah, so there is a lot of that on the ground. Um, And then also just recently I was out on Thursday. Uh, I I visited some of the taxi ranks, which is very interesting as well because, you know, those are still, even though they're not as busy as they were or have been, they're still like there's very much that's where a lot of people are congregating because you know that's an essential service. It's for transport. It's to help people get from A to B. And those are like the services that were needed to operate. And you can still see that there's very much, there are people around there. Um, sometimes it's, it's a bit of a jarring sort of experiencing all people walking around with face masks, especially uh, I would say that a lot of the older elderly are wearing Masks and following the, uh, the directions and regulations from as recommended by the government. So, but like you can still see in certain instances, there's a lot of uh, people can't. South Africans are struggling to understand what social distancing is. So you'll see there will be a lot of queues for buses, and people are standing right on top of each other, okay. which can be a bit worrying. At the same time, it is an open air sort of facility. But, but then you'll have still someone who's wearing a mask. So, you know, like it's, you know, that everyday life habit that you've got to try to break, which has been the interesting thing to witness is us trying to change our habits that we've built over years and years and years of living in, you know, like this is how, this is how things are done. You know, um, it was very interesting watching people getting onto golden arrow buses because obviously before this, that you just kind of piled in, you know, one person goes into the bus, pay for your tickets, and then you go off, you know, like you go sit down. Whereas now they had to count the number of people going in. So the time that it actually takes to get into a taxi or get into a mode of transport is that much longer because everyone's having to double check that you are following the regulations of what government was saying, which is now 70% inside a vehicle as opposed to 50% that was <laughs> at the beginning. And then for about 10 minutes, the 100%. <laughs> so long as you all wore PP3 masks, so, you know, or N- N94 masks. So, um, you know, it, it's very interesting to see how that information kind of like sips through the whole, you know, cascades down to the average consumer and the worker. Tell me quickly, um, on, on that topic of the permits and the taxi ranks, if you, how's the, how has the police in general been um where you got into contact with it because I know that the DA has set up WhatsApp lines about police brutality and all sorts of stuff. And I say, well, it's the first time in the history of the new South Africa that the police has actually had a little bit of power to, to enforce the law. How have they, how, how has they been when you've got in contact with them? My personal experience, they've been very professional. Um, they seem to know exactly what's on the ground, uh, going on the ground. Even one of the policemen even told me my license just had expired, but he was going to let me off for the 21 days. <laughs> it's not like you could go stand in the queue in the traffic department anyway. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, okay. So, uh, but jokes aside, no, um, they had, I think they've dealt with it very well. Um, I haven't been uh, involved with a lot of the raids um, that have been going on in the townships. Uh, where I think it's a little bit more difficult to police, um, which is it was always going to be more difficult to police yeah. as compared to um, you know C Point where I live, where everyone pretty much can follow the rules. We've all got a pretty decently large, you know, like a by comparison, 
you know, we've got fairly decent accommodation and we're not living inside a matchbox with four people. So, you know, like I, I really feel for the people on the ground as well as the police having to try and manage this. So, you know, it's, it's a very different situation from the city urban sort of lifestyle versus the rural yeah. or the township lifestyle. And, you know, we have to be aware that, you know, even if it feels like it's an inconvenience for you, the results are not, it, it's the main reason for these regulations and for them to, trying to enforce it so strictly is for people who live in the townships, who live in the rural areas where this virus, if it does start spreading, can be potentially very, very dangerous for them. Yeah. I've, to be honest, since we went into lockdown, I've been to the shops, I think, four times. Um, that we literally had to go to go buy medicines for the new baby and uh, I had to take Karen to the uh, nursing sister and all sorts of stuff. And I haven't seen one single cop car on the road, but I know that Worcester in its own has got, um, there's three major, like if you want to call it rural, informal type settlements right, right. Um, with, with black people and colored people. And not necessarily the, the, the township, the black township area, that's generally on a, on a normal basis pretty quiet. But the colored areas, it's got lots of gang violence. And I, and I think it, even, it could even rival like the Cape Flats type of gang violence. Is that, I think it was, when was on Thursday, last week, Thursday, they locked up 60 people in the one place that they just picked up from the roads. And these are gangsters and drug dealers. And yes, the, the sale of alcohol and cigarettes has been reduced, but, but the drugs are still very prevalent in these things. Yeah, that is that is obviously a key concern. Um, but I think with the, the stopping of alcohol, it has made a significant yeah. impact on day-to-day life. It has kind of encouraged people to stay at home a lot more. Um, but it's also, I think, encouraged people to just stop drinking and driving. A lot of incidents happen. Um, but yeah, in terms of actual presence, coming into the city and going out, there's quite a few roadblocks. Okay. So my, my um, wife has got to go. Into so those are your main funnel areas. So right. underneath the M1, you know, Woodstock on the highway itself, um, along those routes, they're very well. You know, that that's kind of where they where the most of the flow of traffic is going through. Um, yeah, I, th- I think the point is that let's be honest. Like ninety percent of South Africans are taking this seriously, and then there, there will be you know the odd percent of people who are taking advantage of it. Yeah, my um, what we have to deal with, you know. My wife needs to be at Christian Barna tomorrow morning uh, for a checkup with a gynae. So we're busy getting all the forms and everything ready. Uh, she's going to drive by herself. So um, as long as she's got all the paperwork and stuff in the car, then it should be fine because I need to stay home and look after the other two kids and all those kind of things. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And, um, as long as you've got the paperwork, you know, I mean, obviously you're going to feel a bit nervous yeah. and anxious about it because you're unfamiliar with and how the system is, you but generally they're not, they're not there. The police aren't there to go after people who are following the law. They're after people who yeah. are not supposed to be there. That's the people who are faking being non-essential workers. Those are the, you know, like those people who are trying to take a chance when you shouldn't take a chance because it's, just, it's not really to protect the government, it's yeah. to protect us, the people, South Africans. We need to look after all of us as a nation. 
and that's yeah. that's I think the point. Okay, I think. And uh, yeah, you were gonna say? No, I was gonna say that um, what I would say to people with regards to these a lot of these violence stories is we uh, we as in the collective we are media is seeing a lot of fake news going out. Um, yeah. We try try identify it as much as we can. Um, but please, you've got to also just be aware. Some of these, some footage that you might see that might appear shocking might e might even be taken from <laughs> within this time period. And it, it's come across quite a lot actually recently. We've noticed lots of posts um, and also a lot of people fabricating, you know, the watermarks of your websites to make their false claims and incite panic. Um, that much more, you know, like authentic. So you could just have to be very careful what you, you know, take what you see over social media with a very large pinch of salt. Um, but what is what is what is com companies like Use Twenty Four and you guys doing to make yourself authentic so that people know that this is this is real that that what these guys are sharing? Is is there anything that you guys are that can can you do anything to to prove that to people? So, um, uh, obviously, journalists all are quite overworked, but for me, I before I post any pictures or any um, or repost any sort of information, I'm double checking it with the actual company that's posting that, as well as to see if there is publication or there's information about it that's been written before from uh, authentic sites. Um, that's following, you know, whether it's a government protocol or whether it's, you know, um, a journal article that's been published in, in a respectable publication. You know? So you, you're looking for that information. There's a lot of that background work that's going on in between it. Uh, if I come across an image, I will also reverse image search it to see if it does originate from the time it came, uh, you know, it originated from. Yeah. Uh, as well as uh, also I do sometimes if the photo looks a little bit photoshopped I will use um, photoshop checking to apps or websites so you can check to see if it's been edited or not and I'm also looking at a lot of the metadata inside the images themselves because sometimes the person who's actually uh, faking the image isn't an expert in photoshop and doesn't know how to wipe the metadata and often you'll be able to trace them right back to the source um, very easily and you know like if you you know the more you do it the you know the easier it is to actually spots like when something is a little bit dodgy but always take even even if I get press releases coming in now I always take it with a pinch of salt to say okay is this is this legit is it for real you know we are doing you know cross-checking and back you know back checking just to make sure especially when it comes to information about SARS and you know um, COVID-19. It's a, I think it's, it's just a, a horrible cycle and, and most people will not go into the effort of, to go look for metadata and it's pretty easy to find it if you, if you just scratch around on, on images. It's just too easy for them to click that little share button um, on, on Facebook and it's, it, it drives me insane. No. There's, there's people that's on my Facebook and I'm pretty sure on yours as well. If you go into their timeline, there's like at sixteen fifty one they shared this. At sixteen fifty two they shared that. Sixteen fifty two the next one. It will be 
it is literally all they do the whole day long. Have you, been, uh, have you even caught my family out a couple of times? There was that picture floating around of um, all those military vehicles that were down a road. Uh, yeah. And it turned out like it was only it was from like a military parade in Swanee, like <laughs> at the beginning of the year. And everyone was like, oh, the military's out to get us. Look at this, they're in full force. Anyway, uh, needless to say, they felt, I think, quite shamed. <laughs> and then the, the, apparently the message went back along the chain to shout at everyone who posted the phone. <laughs> yeah, uh, so there was a lot of shaming back there. It's the same as these things that people send around. Please forward this to 10 of your friends or God will hit you with the lightning beam as where you stand. Uh, people don't think. They just click hit share or copy and paste and off they go. But yeah, it, anyway, right, let's, let's change the subject a little bit to something more positive. Um, what's going on in your <laughs> photography at, uh, lately? Photography? Um, yeah, no, it's um, been quite an interesting journey. Um, obviously, with lockdown, I'm photographing a lot of images um, of the streets themselves, um, a lot of isolation images, uh, but I, I'm shifting that towards... So it's, that's like the photo docu, you know, photojournalism side of me, uh, taking photographs of inside stores, uh, empty shelves, uh, you know, people working, that sort of thing. But yeah, and I, I, as you mentioned earlier, I'm a big passionate uh, photographer. In my spare time, I will do a lot of landscape photography. So I've been using this lockdown time quite well, um, using it for uh, to edit my backlog of hundreds of shoots, like we all do. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I'm very, very, um, I very much love being out and outdoors. When we moved to Cape Town in 2016, we fell in love with landscape and nature-based work. I've always been a big fan of being in the outdoors. So if I can, I'll always go for. I'll try get out for sunsets. Um, you know, even if it's uh, even if it's not looking the greatest, or even if you don't think it's going to be a banger. But, uh, you know, that's part of the joy. And, you know, I'm quite fortunate that I can live in sea points, so I'm very close to the ocean, so all lion's head if I need to be. Um, although I'm quite tired of hiking up lion's head, I must admit. Yeah, I wonder what the general Instagram public in Cape Town is doing with their spare time now that they can't be on, t on, on lion's head anymore. <laughs> They're all making streaming videos. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, oh, my yeah, it's amazing how you can actually, when you've got all this free time, to actually like edit stuff. Because you know, like, I think a lot of people don't realize, this, you know, mm -hmm. that you know, being a photographer means you're waking up before sunrise. You're going out, you're getting because that's when the light's the best. Mm -hmm. You know, whether you're photographing people or if you're photographing, you know, sunrises or sunsets or whatever it is. You know, like the best light is morning and evening. So. You want to be out there at those times, which often means that you have weird sleeping patterns and you sometimes take naps during the day. Um, but, you know, that's when you, you know, like you're really chasing something and you know that you want to produce good content, you know, um, especially if you're shooting natural light. Yeah. Well, there's, there's, there's shots that I've waited four years to get the shot that I wanted and then I've never seen conditions like that again for to, to go and recreate something similar or whatever it, the conditions has just never been the same again or better than what you saw it at that particular time 
Yeah, it happens. It's been happening a lot lately. We had a real banger of a sunset just before lockdown, actually. I got a really nice photo of um, at Sunset Beach in Mulnitz and yeah, uh, Very, very nice. You know, it's, it's popping and, you know, it gets a nice reflection of the water with Table Mountain in the background. Um, if you guys know the location, it's, it's absolutely beautiful. Um, and then I think the, the last one we had was, remember, there was a couple of weeks ago, there was that quite a large well, thunderstorm that rolled through mm -hmm. and we managed to get out as well. Just by chance, we, we, we were about to leave and we were like, no, this, you know, this is going to fizzle out. It was like nine o'clock, we were tired. The wind was pumping like you cannot believe. And uh, we were with a couple of mates of mine, Carl and Alex as well. And we were just looking and waiting and just thinking, is this going to happen? Is this going to happen? And then we saw that one strike, you know, and then you see it over Lion's Head popping. And then you like grab your gear and you're in shorts because it's summer and the wind is howling and it's like sandpaper rubbing off your, your hairs on your legs because you're standing there trying to get the shot in the middle of the night. And but I've I've been fortunate enough, uh, the one it was it has been it's eight years ago, twenty twelve, our um Hochart Milan phoned me the afternoon. He says, listen, there's thunderstorms building out first away. He could see it from Stellenbosch. He said, am I keen to go? I said, well, does a lion eat meat? So <laughs> he, he, came to, he came to pick me up. We, we chased down the one storm. We got some epic shots. And then the next afternoon, we went again. And I went back once in 2015 where I got some nice shots. But... Just I've never had the opportunity again to go and shoot the same conditions. And also, it's not that the conditions hasn't been there. It's been there, but now it's four, it's four o'clock in the afternoon. You see, right, listen, this is going to go down because that's when the thunderstorms start picking up. And then I'd, I've sent you messages to find someone to go with you because yeah. it's all fine to go alone, but it's, it's nicer to have somebody, somebody that you can stand around and chat with while you're experiencing this. Yeah, that's half the journey, isn't it? You know, like it's sharing that moment with someone, you know. Um, one great thing is that social media does allow you to share those moments with people using your feeds and your stories, um, which is why I like social media. But, um, you know, nothing beats being able to share that moment with someone who's equally passionate about something that you want to do. And yes, I will go with you for a shoot one day. <laughs> we will do it. It, will, it, will it was happen. when the time was starting or something. There was like some crazy thing. I finished work at like 6 o'clock or 7 at night. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that time I went with Hogarth, um, yeah. we, went with Hogarth. We, we left it. He picked me up at like 4 and we were out there in a crew. I think it was by five, half past five-ish, because it's a bit of an, it's just over an hour's drive to that particular spot. And we, I, he only dropped me at just after 11 that evening, and he still went back to Stellenbosch, and next night yeah. we did it again. Um, so, yeah. yeah it, and the, the, the other thing, there's no cell phone reception on those roads going out that way. So if you, if you, if you do get in a ship, you, you burst a tire or something happens, you are completely alone. If you've got somebody with you and and something does go wrong, at least you've got somebody that can go and look for help or whatever the story is. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, it's always safe, you know, safety in numbers. I mean, even with us, we're quite fortunate. We, you know, we've got a little photographic group. You know, there's a couple of guys who live in Cape Town. We go out together. 
um, on missions every now and again, you know, whether it's a, especially with the early morning stuff. So we can get up there at 3 a.m. or meet at a spot at 2 a.m. So you can do your three-hour hike to get up to a location so that you like, you know, at least you're safe together in that number. And I mean, you know, like there are some pretty dodge <laughs> areas that we like. You got to, you got to, you just got to be safe about it. I mean, I'm also walking around this base, spray base. I don't know if it will ever help, be helpful, but you know, at least it gives you a little bit of sense of security. Yeah. I think I'm not missioning by myself completely. I've done a couple of solo missions, but I like to do it with people. Have you have you had any problems on Table Mountain with, with people who came to bother you? Uh, what, the Sandpox guys? No. <laughs> Apart from them, but from but from, <laughs> from Skellum guys. Um, no, uh, for me, a, cu- a couple of run-ins with some Berkies. Um, but we could see them uh, quite a far distance away and we saw them heading towards us so we just packed up our gear and left mm-hmm. there'd been one or two incidents where I think maybe might have been a bit scared so we, we did a uh, it was a sunset mission that turned into a star trail mission up on top of Lion's Head and on the way back must have been very late must have been 11 or 12 uh, we were coming back down the trail we hit we like freaking out switched off all our torches and we tried to be as quiet as we could whilst we're walking down the trail and uh, you know getting to that that um that meeting spot and then we went off trail because we heard like voices down below and you know whether it's a person just in a car watch you know like chilling out listening to music or what, you don't really want to take that chance so you use one of the other routes around but i mean uh, that does happen but it's you know like I'm, I'm pretty sure that 90% of the time nothing would happen to you, but you know, you, you really want to take that risk. And yeah. you're going to be, you know, you got to just be a bit sensible about it. Yeah. I, I think I've had more of a worry, like when I fly my drone, like in areas, uh, you know, like along the beachfront, because they, you know, there's a lot of traffic going through where some of the mountain routes are a little bit, I wouldn't take my drone with it because it's a sandbox area, so you yeah. wouldn't be flying your drone in a sandbox. Um, so, like, if you're on the beachfront, sometimes there, there's, you know, like, you do get a couple of people that look, you know, you, I, can't, I like to think that there's, like, a sense, you can sense that someone's, you yeah. know, looking at you, you in the wrong way. Especially with the yeah, drone. It, a, a drone course, is like a yeah. door card. People just walk over when you take a drone out yeah all the time man um, <laughs> and you're like no you have to stand back or yeah. <laughs> <laughs> i'd lift the thing the one, the one evening we wanted to go shoot cityscapes from the um uncompleted bridge in town um if we um, we're coming from the from from seapoint side yeah, I know it. Yeah, what yeah. about it? So we went, we went on there one evening to go shoot because I wanted to get like light trails oh. and stuff with the F&B building and everything because it's a, it's a yes, stunning yeah. spot. And um, you've probably been there before. You've got the section that goes out and then you've got the other road next to it. But there's like a meter and a half, two meters yes. gap between the two. And we saw yeah. there, there was there was Berghis on the other side, on the other bridge. We saw them when we, when we went in because that was before they put that fence up. You could still driving a little bit so we walked in and we literally set up it was myself and another guy and another girl this is a good couple of years ago i think it was back in 2015 
anyway, so we, we, we started setting up and next month I just hear footsteps. So I look around and about 150 meters away from me, one of these baggies was walking over. So I said, how the hell did they get over that road? They, they must have, there must be a way that they could climb over from the other side to where we were. So I put my camera back in my bag and I left my tripod like halfway extended out and I just put it over my shoulder. So in case this guy comes in and he gives us shit, I'm just going to whack him with this thing. Nobody's going to find him there till the next morning. And then we just duck. But he, he came up and obviously they're taking chances and he said, no, he's looking for a cigarette or five rand or whatever it was he was looking for. So we just said to him, sorry, we can't help him. We got in the car and we left. Yeah. And you can't, you get those... You get those experiences a lot on the streets when you're doing street photography. So with as when I walk out and I'm photographing during lockdown, I've got no money on me. I've got the bare essentials. I've got a bottle of water. I don't carry food with me. Mm. I just carry, you know, the, you know, the basic equipment that I only need for that time because uh, it's a lot easier to say to someone, I don't have anything on me, you, you know, like, you know, you can yeah. be honest about it and speak up and say, listen, I don't have cash on me. I don't have this. Um, you, you're wasting your time, you know, like, please stop bothering me, um, which, which is a good strategy I found when I'm walking out on the streets. Um, and, yeah, obviously, if you have got that protection with, you know, if you're feeling, and if you are feeling uncomfortable, recognize that that's uncomfortable and yes. pack your gear up. And go, and if you if they if they are going to mug you, at the end of the day, it's just equipment. It's not your life. So give them whatever they want. It doesn't matter if you know. You can always replace that, or maybe you can't replace the amazing sunset photo you just took. But yeah. <laughs> um, I've, I've always said, you know, that if, like if, you'll have other sun. I've always said that if I should get into that position, and thank goodness and touch wood, I've never been. Um, they normally wouldn't come and look for shit with me because I'm a pretty big guy and you've it's a, that's yeah. one advantage yeah. that they will think twice before confronting me with something. Um, or luckily that's what I what I keep saying telling myself is that if if something goes down, I would see if I can at least get the memory cards back from them. Say to listen, take whatever you want. Just all I want the memory cards is like a hundred bucks for one of these things. You've got a camera with forty grand in your hand, so um, but yeah, it's, it's difficult, but I, knowing myself, I would probably put up a fight in any way. If I, if, if, if I've got any sort of leverage on him, I'm going to freaking, I'm going to hurt him. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's, I, I suppose we've got to, you know, like that's, it, you can't help it. That's your human, you know, like that's how you would respond, you know, um, but it's thankfully I haven't really, yeah, I've been like, what? picked a couple of times whilst I've been out on shoots um, in protest areas. It's very, it's very interesting when you out, um, like if you are photograph, if you ever get the opportunity to photograph strikes or yeah. um, like actual protests where there's burning tires and tear gas flying everywhere, you know, um, that's very, you know, like you learn, like you don't walk around with shorts with open pockets. You don't have anything in an open pocket. Because once you get swarmed by about ten guys that are on top yeah, you of you, you don't know who it is. Uh, even feel that your phone's been lifted, and that's happened to me once or twice. Um, even in a, it was during a fees must fork um, protest at the UNISA buildings. Ah, UNISA buildings? No, not the UNISA. Um, the union building. Sorry. Yeah. In, in Pretoria. Yeah, and then I had to, 
So they lifted my phone and I had to run back to the car train station, catch a car train all the way back to Sandton to file my story because I couldn't send it via phone. So everyone's like wondering where I was because I couldn't, I wasn't in communication with people and yeah, I just kind of scared. <laughs> it was like a good three kilometer run back into the thing and then to get the story out and file the photos was quite interesting. No, very, very cool. Uh, a, 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 question, <laughs> a question about those kind of stories. Obviously, I've never seen any of those images of yours. Um, are you allowed to share them? Are they the property of News24? Uh, are they your property? How does that work? So, um, I before I was working for News24, I was working with uh, Forbes African magazine. So, I own the rights to all my photographs. Um, I've been photographing with my own gear for years. I'm kind of like it's... Um, I've never really had the opportunity for work to supply me with gear. So anything I do shoot for them is kind of like a bonus for them. So I'm technically paid as a written journalist, uh, but all my photography is my photography. Um, so the, the photojournalism content is usually we do keep it exclusive to a story. So we won't, we won't publish it beforehand. Yes. Afterwards, yes, you can publish. Uh, I do have a website up actually where I do keep a nice large portfolio of like my favorite contents. Um, okay. If people were interested in seeing it, um, yeah, that's usually where I keep, uh, you know, updating it every now, every couple of months to add some new photos. But yeah, a lot of my photography now I'm shifting towards doing the, the more landscape environmental based work. So I think from May you'll be seeing a lot more environmental based stories, kind of like the rat story that we were talking on. Okay about. Uh, I'm going to be doing a lot more of that work. So I'm going to be leaving Business Insider and I'll be working as a freelance journalist. So the idea being I want to get on the ground, uh, produce those, you know, impactful uh, stories with, you know, human interest stories, uh, animal interest stories, innovation at its heart right from the streets. Okay. Is there anything that you uh, that you say, right, as soon as I walk out that door, the first thing I'm going to pursue or is it you just going to take a bit of a breather and just see what happens? Uh, no, um, at the moment I'm quite obsessed with tidal pools. Um, yes, if, you're, right. if you follow like a lot of the, the photo streams that I put up, I do like a lot of photography of it. So I'm busy collecting them, uh, as in like collecting images of all the tidal pools around um, Cape Town. So I'm not actually sure what I'm on. I must be on about eight or nine, but you know, like not all the weather isn't always perfect yes. or ideal to go get a photograph of. Cool. So you've got to time it quite. You know, you've got to time it quite right as well as you've got to get time to do it. But yeah, a lot of very interesting stories coming about it with uh, conservation, eco conservation wise. Uh, the city is shifting um, the maintenance of them from chemical based. Um, maintenance to more environmental friendly based work so that's maintaining the pools using friendly methods yeah what 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 did they do that was chemically based because all the tidal pools i know is like the ocean comes in and out as it pleases there's fish living in it there's crabs and all sorts of stuff why would they use chemicals in it from the beginning well that's i think it was you know from a generation or two before when you know um, they use there were things, maintenance that they were doing on, say, for instance, the walls, which needed to be, they would clean the walls, which um, 
using you know an actual harmful chemical or even the paint itself can be can destroy the environmental you know, the ecology of the actual animals in it so they use instead of using a, a chalk based paint they're using something else so um the there's the, the methodology of it has been formalized and has been accepted by the um by the western cape government as like that is the protocol that they want to be following in the next years so that's they've been piloting a lot of that work in uh, a couple of the the tidal pools st james cock bay uh Wally's tidal pool for the last couple of years um and now they're starting to implement it as an actual program so a lot of it would have been I think you, you would probably be thinking of St. James or something when you were talking about those title pools because it sounds like it would be the, you know, like it's a very popular photographer yeah. spot to go to. So for the last couple of years, they, that was actually a pilot project where they were trying to figure out how they could clean it. So instead of like scraping off or killing the seaweed, they can just use uh, pressure hot pressure hoses to kill off the, you know, to remove the algae on the top edges of the wall so that people can walk on it where it's not so dangerous. Okay. You know, like it's just little things like that, you know, just implementing those that have become more of a, like a formal protocol, which will go towards, you know, creating that beautiful ecosystem, you know, so that we can all love and enjoy. And do you, do you know how many like octopuses are yeah. swimming around in those tidal pools? It's like, it's actually quite a shock to the system too when you think about how much life is in there. Yeah, and but and they used to like, periodically drain them they used to actually drain the entire tidal pool to clean it just to, just so that they could clean the tops of the walls it's like it's quite frightening actually yeah <laughs> those tidal pools are amazing thing well anything that you that you stick in the ocean within a couple of months it's going to have a, some sort of little habitat growing on it or whatever the story is and um yeah i'm, I'm very much looking forward to seeing uh, how the tidal pools now after lockdown with 21 days of no one swimming yes. in them like I think they'll, it could be very interesting, especially now at the seasonal time. This is usually the time that the tidal pools actually there's a lot of life that comes into them. Uh, so I'm expecting it could be quite a few good dives if you get your opportunity on day one of lockdown is over. Head over to a tidal pool fast. You'll okay. see all sorts of creatures in there that probably wouldn't be around. Yeah, I saw I saw a video yesterday of um, seagulls and cormorants pushing up a big school of anchovies and Langebon right onto the beach, almost like yes. a sardine run kind of thing. And I'm just thinking, shit, Incredible, I eh? if I was living there, I would have had my fishing rod out, I would have been spinning on the edge of that thing because there would be bait, uh, game fish there, and just just go, I wouldn't care if they come and lock me up. It would be awesome. Now, see, there's also, um, just today, I didn't verify this, so I, you can't best bear can't uh, vet me on this, but uh, obviously floating around photos of killer whale. The killer whales are back in False Bay, off Cock Bay, and they're apparently just offshore, and they'd um, shepherded a whole shoal of dolphins, and they were doing um, torpedo, uh, you know how the great whites uh, torpedo prey? Yeah. They were using technique to get dolphins, like right offshore. Because apparently the, the photos look amazing. Like incredible, like seeing a killer whale do what the great whites do. Yeah, those, the, the, they they clever animals. Those things. for sure. To to have figured out that you can that you can kill a great white just for the liver, um, is they they very clever animals.
but but all these things all these things all these things used to happen in Cape Town if you go back to the 60s and 70s and 50s that, that used to be a, a common thing the guys used to be able to catch bluefin tuna of the ledges in Cape Point you, Incredible, you, huh? you must go back and read that I, I had a, a book an old book that was at a lot of old stories from way back then the guys were catching bluefin tuna on a regular basis. I'm not talking about bluefin tuna this size. I'm talking about two, three hundred kilogram bluefin tunas off the rocks in in Roycrans in Cape Point. Yeah, no, it's it's incredible to see it all coming back here. It's just it it also just shows you how much the city has grown. I mean, I've only been here since 2016, but it's just just the impact of urbanization on Cape Town as a whole, the False Bay area and the, you know, the uh, Bloberg side as well, like just ship traffic. Yeah. Ship traffic has just increased so much that it's, it's, it's amazing that we don't actually have more whale strikings than we do. And, you know, like all the, the marine life has had to kind of like adapt and you can see, now we can actually see it's, affecting us you know how it's affecting the marine life i mean the other day just outside our window here um there was a i don't know which bird it was it was a hawk <laughs> an actual hawk in the middle of the city it was just chilling everyone was out in the balcony watching this thing and it was, just, it was obviously checking out all the, the pigeons in the area like i knew we had owls but i, I yeah. haven't seen like a like an actual bird of prey in cape town apart from like an owl in up on Lion's Head, you know, yes. this was in the middle of Seaport. This this guy was just chilling there watching like the pigeons below. It's fascinating to see, like, you know, how when you have this quiet streets and you have less traffic, how it just you know nature just kind of comes back. But it's 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 weird how people perceive these kind of things. Um, I chatted to the guys from um, the Bird of Prey Sanctuary at Spear. Um, okay. Uh, oh, the uh, Eagle Encounters. Yes. Hank. Yes. They do. Yeah. They do pest. Good guy. Great interview. Actually. Yeah. They do. <laughs> they do pest control with um, with um, hawks. I think they use, it's a harrier yes. hawk. A harrier hawk that they use. And he said to me, yes. "Well, they will go to these fancy lorry dog golf estates and they rock up there with a cage with a hawk in and everything. Take them out. Now all the tunnies say, oh, this is so cute. I'm so glad you're not using poison or guns <laughs> or whatever.'" He says, okay, right, so they get into the golf cart, get into the golf cart, and, and he says, what you need to do is, because the, the Egyptian geese are so big, they're about double the size of the hawk, they use a female, so I don't know if he, to, if he told you this if you, when you met them. No, he did, yes, yeah. Where, where they literally have to, they, they throw the hawk out the side of the car, so this thing's got a bit of speed and momentum already, and then he hits that freaking goose, and the shit and feathers flying everywhere, he says the first goose that goes down, these tunnies, I've got their hands in the air. How could this be so cruel? It's nature. It's what it's supposed to do. Yeah. And and just yeah. on, just on that subject, I don't know how well you um, follow with these kind of um, activism kind of things. Um, if let's say we talk about Table Mountain and we talk about safety, and it is something I've I've I don't know if I've mentioned it to you with the with those Himalayan towers that's on the mountains. Yes, yes, you have, yeah. And and 
I honestly think that if Cape Town, and look, it's going to be, it's going to be a lot of red tape involved, if they can open that stuff up for international hunters to come and, and at least cull some of the animals, and, and the quick way I worked it out is you can hunt a tar bull in New Zealand, where they're also invasive, for 15,000 US dollars to hunt one animal. So if, if you can put that up for Table Mountain, they can put a tag out for five or six animals and make enough money to employ at least three more rangers or five rangers for that matter on Table Mountain. It's not going to, it's not, yeah. gonna, it's not going to take a lot of, um, it's not going to take a lot away from the population that's there that is damaging in any way. It's just going to be all the red tape involved with, with doing it on Table Mountain. Hunting. Yeah. Unfortunately, uh, Table Mountain is a bit contentious, obviously being in a city <laughs> yeah. and, um, yeah, with gun permits, it's, yeah, it might be a bit my, my worrying, wife, my but wife's, my wife's I, I'm, I'm aware with, yeah, I'm aware of the tar. Yeah. <laughs> my, my wife's uncle used to be the park manager in Table Mountain back in the seventies. And he told, uh, me, he told me how he, how he's, how he, they had to shoot him. They had to, to literally um, eradicate him completely. And they shot him up until the point where um, there was like five or six animals left. They just could not get to. They were just too deep into the mountains and into the crevices and everything for them to, to, to get to. And obviously, you must have seen him on the mountain. That little population has again exploded to where it is at the moment. Yeah, and they're very, de you know, they're very destructive when it comes to eating the fain boss I've heard. So, yeah, yeah it's, it will be an issue, but much like Indian vegetation, you know, we want to try maintain the ecology and the environment as much as possible and keep it as natural as possible. And even with alien vegetation itself, those blue gums and eucalyptus and blue wattles or black wattle, mm. they spread so fast. Quick. It's so difficult to manage them because they grow so quickly. And they, you know, unless you have active uh, participants and funding, you know, keeping an eye on them, it can really get out of hand very quickly. And it's so destructive to and, the natural uh, vegetation. Uh, on on that on that topic, I, I photographed one of the Sandby um, uh, congresses a couple of years ago, where the, one of the ladies spoke that they that actively had a I'm pretty sure it still is an alien alien vegetation clearing project. But the problem was they yeah. went, they went in and spot checked on some of these guys, and they get to the they get to the place where they were supposed to clear, and it was pine trees down in George area where they only ring the bark of the trees closest to the road. So when you drive when you drive by, you only see half the ring from the roadside. So it looks like the, the tree is ringed completely. And then they would they would invoice them for it. So it so it it's everybody's out there to make a quick buck and scam everybody as soon as as quick as they can. <laughs> that's terrible. <laughs> Oh man, but that's when you need like people like the WWF and whoever's maintaining it or Cape Nature themselves or, you know, whichever environmental group, you know, they're, they're, they're important because they're the watchdogs, they're looking out for it, you know, they're the ones who you know passionate about it and, you know, it's, but yeah, it's, it's, it doesn't matter what sort of industry it is, it could be abalone farming as well or, you know, um, like you say, um, <laughs> tars <laughs> you know it's 
you know, you need you need passionate people behind it and people to, you know, really use that as, you know, it's, you know it would be great if that could be their income. I think in general, we need to stop paying footballers millions of dollars yeah. to keep all on. And we need to take all that money and give it to health practitioners and give it to, you know, environmental conservationists because at the end of the day, and we, we won't care about what Lionel Messi was doing, you know, 20 years ago when you can't walk around anymore because we have to wear oxygen masks or whatever, you know, like as an apocalyptic theory. But, you know, mm. the general consensus is we really need to shift our way of thinking about the environment towards sustainable, you know, sustainability. And we are the generation that has to do it now because, you know, 10, 20 years down the line, it's going to be too late. We are the people who actively have to make an involvement. And that's what, I, I, you know, that's my passion. That's what it's about. That's why we go out and shoot nature, yeah. you know, in, the na- in nature, because that's why we love it. It's beautiful. And we want to make sure that it's here for generations to come. When, Drone laws are obviously completely relaxed and we can fly them wherever we want to. <laughs> well, you just come and fly in a country where you're not going to cause anybody, you're not going to offend anybody yeah. by doing this. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, my word. Right. Looks like we, we've, we've gone up onto an hour. I don't know if there's anything else you still want to chat about. Um, just maybe, uh, yeah. Maybe this. Uh, yeah, so uh, there are a couple of videos that are going around of um, drones being used in lockdown situations. Yes. Uh, in lockdown cities. Um, as beautiful as they are, please guys be aware that as a drone hobbyist, and unless you have the license or permission from one, the correct license, you're, you're operating under a remote operator certificate you shouldn't be flying your drone in in the city. Um, there's a national air lockdown, and it's you know that that for me it's uh, we, we've all got to be just be aware of that. And you know it's a big topic amongst drone pilots at the moment. I'm not flying my drone at all. I haven't flown it at all in lockdown. I'm resisting the urge every day because I see amazing footage. But um, this will just be just a bit of a call out to everyone. Please, guys, you know it's. Let's just follow the correct procedures, um, and just, you know, like let's do the, you know, like let's do the right thing. You know, but like there are a lot of people who've spent a lot of money trying to get the correct certificates so that they can fly safely within a city. Just remember that, you know, air laws do, you know, our pass laws still do apply. But it's, um, it's 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 most of those things. The guys are just irresponsible, and they hunting for that ten thousand likes on Facebook and on Instagram. And, that, and that, that's all it is. They've got no disregard to anybody or anybody else in the air because how many choppers are in over Cape Town City during the day? There's plenty. Are they, are, are they, are they on the lookout for them? I highly doubt it. Um, it, it. It's absolutely crazy what people will do just to, just to get those likes and views. Yes, and I do think that a lot of people appreciate that footage of the empty streets and the empty promenade and everything. But they should just be careful, and don't don't yeah. because there'll be one guy that screws it up for the rest of us. Yeah, and uh, I think it's a it's just listen, like you know, as much as we've got all these well amazing tools, we've got to use them responsibly. Yes. So, yeah, and you know, like I I fly as much as I can in legal areas. 
know, I don't try to break any laws that I know I'm breaking off. And I know a lot of people will see this amazing footage and then they think that they can fly it as well because, you know, you know, it seems like it's the norm. But just be aware that for lockdown, there's no fly zone. Um, so unless you are an emergency service or an essential service and you have correct permit to fly, you shouldn't be flying your drones in the city. And, you know, I'm not doing it. I'm, I'm walking around in the streets with the camera in my hand, not yeah. flying a drone. So, you know, like this is, you know, before everyone starts trying to fly their drones to start delivering Biltog and doing city things, remember there are helicopters that are going to be flying around, you know, very, well, hopefully not very soon, but you, know, you don't know how quickly this, es- this disease can escalate. Yeah. So they need the air traffic. Yeah. So just be aware. You know, it's the same as flying a, your drone when there's a fault fire and a helicopter a helicopter can't operate if they know there's a drone flying around in the area to dump water onto oh, a fault fire. It's crazy. I've, I've, I've had, a, I had a client request from me to get some pictures of his farm in the Durance about two years ago. And um, where he wanted to have the pictures taken, I had to be up at about 500 meters to get the shots that he wanted to try and get the most of the farm in, in one image. And I said to them, I'm not going to do it because I feel comfortable in flying up until about 200 meters, which I, my the limit is set to 200. If, if I can't get it in at that height, I will just not do it. Because, and you know, the wind of where you stand and with the wind at 200 meters is two completely different things. And plus where this place is, it is in direct air traffic um, uh, air traffic route. All the sprayers, all the choppers, the airplanes, everything goes through that channel to get to the Durans from where they fuel up. So if, you, if you're standing there with a the drone 500 meters up in the sky, that's the height these yeah, planes are going it, it is, And I said to him, listen, I'll do it. You sign an indemnity form. I put the drone's value on the invoice for you. So if I land the drone safely, nothing happened. I just created that off the invoice. Um, and then we carry on. And they said, no, 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 they're not prepared to take the chance. I said, but you want me to take the chance? I said, there's no, no way I'm going to do that. Yeah. And I mean, uh, that's, you know, like we, we do have some very regulated, you know, it is a very regulated industry, the drone industry, and to do commercial work is very difficult. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, um, that's the kind of reality that we are in. Yeah. Luckily, the people, shift, the, yeah. the, the people that I do work for where I use my drone is is in the farming community. So I'm on their private property away from anything that it could bother. If it's in a place where I know that there's crop sprayers, I will not even take the drone out. Um, and I asked them beforehand when, when, when we go, I said, listen, are there people that's going to be spraying What's the story? Where are you situated? So I can have a look at those things, just to, just to be safe and give them the, um, um, the, the assurance that I'm not, I'm not a cowboy. That's going to be there. Yeah. yeah. So, just uh, yeah, that's that's just a final message to that. Yeah. I'd say it's just be you know it's locked down. It's not, it's not fun and games. I'm not going out there and photographing landscape sunsets you know you're going out you're going out because you're working you're not yes. going out to have well if you have fun with you know if you do what you like you know if you work 
is your fun, <laughs> then it's yeah. fine. Yes. But, um, you know, we're not doing the landscape stuff. We're doing the real journalism, telling stories, uh, documenting what's happening on the ground. Yeah. But listen, you must please see, please send me the link of your um, where people can view those images because I will yes, put it in the in the description of the video so people can go look at it and I I would like to go see it because that is that is something I would still I, I love watching uh, good photojournalistic um, images. It's yeah. Totally, I'll send you it right away. Yeah, have you have you seen that HBO series called Witness? No. Do yourself a favor. You've probably got a bit of time. It's on YouTube. Um, <laughs> just go search for Witness. W I T N E S S series, and it, it's a series that follows. I think it's a six part one. Uh, six different journalists, photojournalists in different areas. Like there's one girl that was seven. Oh, cool. She was seven months pregnant, and she was running around the jungles in middle africa looking for uh connie um one of them in the in the brazilian favelas it it really is an amazing series you you'll enjoy it that's cool yeah that sounds really cool yeah, and yeah it's, that's it's, like it's, it's raw footage of the guys they're busy dying he's actually dying it's not it's not it's not yeah. acting yeah it's a weird sort of profession isn't it photojournalism is like you you know, it's so true what they say about, you know, there's that book like of, you know, where you get that like feeling of like it's an addiction. Yeah. Like you always go yeah. back. So you like feel like you actually, I, I often get it when I'm like, oh my God, I, I really could go to a protest today. <laughs> <laughs> you know, <laughs> because, you know, sometimes when you're just you're at the desk, you're just typing away and you're like, really, you know, like could really do with some burning tie in my hair <laughs> i got a, I got a, I got a brief it's amazing like you know we're in a very fortunate position yeah, yeah. I, got, I got a brief bit of that um where these guys in this series say that the camera is the barrier between them and what's actually happening yes. there because as soon as you take the camera away it's like oh shit, this is actually here but when you're shooting you're looking through the little viewfinder and it's like as if you're watching a movie and i've i had a little bit of a taste of that when my first daughter was born i was shooting everything and um when they said to me, right, you can come and cut the cord now. Signal passed. And you and, and I put the camera down. It's like this flood of emotion just came over me at that particular spot. It was it was quite surreal. You can't explain it to people um, in words how it feels. Um, so. Yeah, no, it's very difficult. But, you know, it's, it's it touches you here. Like, it hits you. Like, you can feel it. And, you know, like, it's there's nothing more gratifying than knowing that the story that you have created has impact, yes. you know, and, you, you know, like it's going it to may, maybe change lives. It's not maybe not going to change lives, but it's going to, you know, like help people understand that's, you know, like, oh, my God, I didn't realize that that was a thing. Like, oh, wow, you know, like you've totally changed the way I think about the world or, yes. you know, those sorts of emotions. That's what journalism's about, like bringing, you know, bringing people together, connecting people. Yeah, and you've you've probably watched the movie Bang Bang Club. Yes, yeah. Actually, no, some of them Greg and uh, you know, but we've been out on shoots with some of them as well. Yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> and Jar, yeah. So Jar, they're they're crazy. They are. They're nuts. Uh, well, like, one, so there, there's there's two things that they said in that movie is one after that picture with the child with the vulture and everything. They said 
that if you if people don't ask questions about your photos, you didn't do the job correct. Um, and and the second thing is is that if if you're not shooting, well, what was it? Right in the beginning of the movie, when the guys there with like a two hundred millimeter lens, and he's like thirty meters away from whatever yeah, going not on. Not close enough. Yeah. Yeah. Said if you're not, you're not in it. Yeah, you need to be there in it. So you shoot at twenty eight yeah. or thirty five millimeters, and then you you will get this, the the right emotion from the image. Yeah, the best one, the best lens to use definitely use your. You know, it's, I think I find a I'm quite comfortable with a twenty eight to seventy seven mil. Yeah, um, the Tamron's got yeah it's twenty eight to seventy five. That's kind of like where it gives you just enough that you can be in someone's face to get like the whole yes. face but you know and then also it gives you a little bit of an advantage to get the full body you know it's 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 very much like a you know very versatile lens sort of thing you know but it's so true like if you you know i'm and i'm very much if you see me when i'm shooting landscapes as well i'll go like right up onto the edge of the yeah where I'm the way from the same because that's that's where the action is. You want to be right there where the action is. You know that's that's exactly how I am. And I'm shooting out and those things. And I also get shot at that a lot because I go get too close. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, that that's where it is. You know, like if you're not seeing you know the sweat of people's faces, then you're not really experiencing it with them. Yeah, awesome. Yeah, I, I I can't wait to look at this at that website of yours. I'm I'm curious now. Okay, cool. <laughs> cool. Awesome. Right, Jay, thank you, so, thank you so much for, for coming to chat to me. And um, Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, no, and uh, hopefully we all this is over soon and we can finally go out and shoot more um, interesting stuff. What are you going to shoot? What's your first thing you're going to shoot? To be very honest with you, I've got no idea. I've, I'm planning a couple of things I want to shoot in studio. With my masks and my gloves and my, all my stuff, all stock type images. But I want to, I, I don't want okay. to have it as to look stocky. I want it to be something different. But I want to do it this week still. Before, well, no, you must. Yeah. yeah. If you can get your hands on a ventilator, we need ventilator pictures as well. That's going to be the next thing. So we've got mask shortage, we've got glove shortage. We need ventilator sort of based things, you know, yeah. stock of that sort of like also with complexion, you know. Oh, yes. Um, and, uh, you know, because I think the ventilator is going to be the next story because we only have like 3,000 in the country. Yeah. So um, if things do escalate, you know, that would be a good, you definitely, because there's no, I checked. <laughs> on all the free websites, be yeah, isn't that for something? Yeah, <laughs> I'll, I'll, <laughs> we've got I'll, a contract with Getty, but we never use Getty photos. But still, I'll I'll, um, I'll have a look. Yeah, I'll yes. have a look. Maybe we can. Maybe we know somebody that knows someone that could organize something. So we'll see. We'll see. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Jay, thanks so much again. <laughs> have an awesome evening, and um, yeah, keep safe out there. Sure. Alright, cheerio. Awesome, man. Yeah, you too, huh? And, uh, just. Alright, bye.